Showtime. It's time for that radio show everyone loves. Do not attempt to change the station. Just listen, and we'll keep broadcasting. It's time to begin the show. 1039 LI News Radio presents Your Island, the very best in talk radio, with your host, Tom Shalero. And once again, welcome back to our Tuesday edition. What a great show. Now, in the meantime, this segment of our program is being brought to you by the Suffolk County Patrolman's Benevolent Association. The PBA serves to support law enforcement, participate in special events and programs, all designed to help protect our community. They care about you and keeping us all safe from the anti-drinking and driving campaigns to protecting our children with education on the Megan's Law. PBA promotes a great relationship between the police and the people it's sworn to serve. As we know, Suffolk County is one of the safest counties in the country, and the PBA takes pride in its strong belief in our security. They have honored our fallen heroes and contribute greatly to our suburban way of life. Need to know more? Go right to www.suffolkcountypba.org. Noel DiGirolamo, president. Now, last week we spoke a little bit about that. Uh, very interesting. If you're interested in the criminal justice system and how the system works in this country, and even geographically, how it splits between the North and the South and so on. We were looking at that uh, case down there in uh, Waco, Texas, called the Twin Peaks case. And that was the case where the Confederation of Clubs, I think that's the proper phrase, all got together to have a friendly, nice meeting. But uh, unfortunately, there were some uh, issues that went on and uh, uh, somewhat of a biker brawl uh, broke out. But again, not among, there were a lot of innocent people there. The system there decided to arrest everybody, 177 people arrested, and uh, you, one would wonder, uh, how can you do that? How can you lock people up without due process, without probable cause, and so on? Well, that was back in 2015, I believe, May of 2015, and uh, now we had the first trial. It was the trial for uh, Jake, uh, Jake Carazal, and uh, interesting enough, that case has ended in a hung jury, which means there was no unanimous verdict so there was no guilty verdict it's still in limbo right now the uh, prosecutors can uh, retry and apparently March is another time but here's the issue with that if there's not enough evidence in, in trial number one will they go through 177 trials the history of the system says they don't do that because for the most reason if you can't get one conviction you're not going to get 177 this is a very difficult case Who's innocent? Who's guilty? And my guess is there's a lot of innocent folks out there. So now we're kind of lucky today. In the studio, we have uh, Jim Barr, president of Long Island Abate, a motorcycle rights advocacy group. You've heard me mention them uh, many times. They've been a great sponsor of this program. And also on the line, we have Double D, uh, who's a spokesperson for the Confederation of Clubs, who, interesting enough, has been in Waco, Texas, covering this trial. Double D, welcome. Hey, thank you for having me back. Oh, my pleasure. Last time uh, we had a little phone issue when you were on, so we'll hope- hopefully that's not going to happen this kind of time. And uh, I just introduced the subject. We did last week when you were on, and I know there are a lot of people out there listening to the program interested in the system. You know, this is an interesting case because it involves certain types of laws that may be passed in terms of uh, almost a blanket conviction. If you look a certain way and you act a certain way or you wear certain clothing, that you can be construed as part of a criminal organization. Now, you just sat through Jay Carazel's trial, and we're going to pick your brain apart because in many cases there was not overwhelming evidence that this individual was involved in any crimes. Let's start with that. What was the evidence like there? And uh, if you were a jury juror, what would you be compelled to think? Well, I think the main evidence that they presented against Jake, the prosecution, were based on a couple of text messages, and they were very generalized. They weren't specific. 
but they basically suggested that everybody in his club in the Dallas area head to the Confederation of Clubs meeting down in Waco, that it's important that everybody participate. And that text at the end of it said, quote, unquote, leave your old ladies at home, leave your girlfriends and wives at home. And then there was a second text message that said, bring your tools, which basically means bring your handguns. Firearms. And that is what the entire state rested basically their case on. That was it? That was just that? Was there any weapons that that were produced that uh, they could match to some deceased individuals, anything like that? Well, there were. Um, We know that all of the individuals that um, were deceased that day, that were killed that day, we know um, um, why they were killed and and who killed them. And what it largely came down to is the fact that there had been a conflict between these two clubs for uh, many months. And members of the Banditos Motorcycle Club, one in particular, had been attacked on I-35, 10 miles outside of Waco, about a month before this COC meeting occurred. And so the argument that was presented by the defense and the one that ultimately persuaded the vast majority of the jurors, even though they were deadlocked with a couple, was that it's perfectly reasonable to not bring your wife or your girlfriend into an environment where you have been targeted by another club. And it's even more reasonable to assume that you would legally protect yourself. And so it came down to the theory of self-defense versus the theory of mutual combat. Or premeditated. Re- it was, they, were, they were going there for premeditation of a, of a fight, but it sounds like the defense offered an alternative to that. And they did, yeah. The alternative was this was a Confederation of Clubs meeting that was one week after the National Coalition of Motorcyclists National Convention where COCs from all over the country gather to give legislative updates concerning what's happening in each state legislature. And that information shared among the different states, um, just like any uh, political movement shares information. And so that was the reason that they went. And there's an individual, uh, a couple of individuals, one in particular, a man I know very well named Paul Landers, who was the primary lobbyist for the Texas Confederation of Clubs, who was a keynote speaker at the INCOM convention a week before. And so many people came to that Region 1 meeting for the specific purpose of hearing Paul Lander speak about legislative updates nationally and also legislative updates in the state of Texas. Um, There were a couple of important pieces of legislation that were being decided in the Texas state legislature. And so that's the reason that everybody traveled to that meeting and wanted to attend that meeting. The the meeting referring to at the Twin Peaks restaurant in Waco. Yes, the Twin Peaks restaurant in Waco. And unfortunately, the club that the Banditos have had an issue with, Cossacks Motorcycle Club, had never participated in the Confederation of Clubs. They're not part of the political movement. They don't participate whatsoever, yet they showed up an hour and a half before the meeting occurred and, uh, you know, basically took over the patio area where the meeting was supposed to occur. And as soon as Jake Carazal and uh, some of his brothers and um, many club members from the, from the Dallas area rode into the parking lot, um, as soon as they began parking their motorcycles, they were immediately ambushed by dozens of members of the Cossacks. And the confrontation happened very, very quickly. And it was, without a doubt, triggered by this other motorcycle club offensively ambushing them. Now, Cossacks and is not a member was- of uh, COC? The Cossack, the no, they've never in. they've never been a member of the Confederation of Clubs. They've never participated in the political movement whatsoever. So and one one could assume that the Cossacks were the instigators here. Can we say that? I mean, again, I'll, I'll leave that up to you. Well, 
Well, let me uh, let me let, let me just uh, uh, put it in the words of Jake Carazal, who took the stand. Um, Jake described this as uh, an issue that was not caused by the banditos, in his opinion. And in fact, interestingly enough, uh, uh, he even says that he doesn't blame it on law enforcement. Law enforcement saved his life. Two individuals that attempted to murder him um, were killed by the police. And he blames it on a rogue organization that had never participated in the COC and for months had been targeting members of his club. And so, you know, that, that, that in a nutshell is exactly what the defense argued and exactly what Jake argued. And um, it, 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 the video evidence corroborates that. Um, so, yeah, that's exactly what happened. And it's unfortunate that that happened, but that's why this resulted. Any members of the Cossacks at least involved with uh, under indictment or showing to be somewhat culpable? Again, from your ex- explanation right now, uh, for the most part, it almost seems like there was an aggressor here that uh, did an, uh, pretty much a premeditated attack, the way it sounds. Uh, they got there early. They took, uh, looks like they took the high ground for, for, for argument's sake and essentially went after uh, individuals that were there to attend a meeting. And I, I also want to underscore, there were off-duty cops that were members of clubs that were there for the uh, peaceful meeting uh, to iron out some legislative meetings. So it's not that uh, you can't say that there were not substantial citizens there. There were. There were upstanding citizens. And I'm sure I, I saw the trial with Jake. Jake seems like a nice guy. Uh, it, it almost seems like this was an investigator's nightmare, and the nightmare came true. I, I believe that's exactly what happened. And, you know, I think it's important to put this in context. The Confederation of Clubs in Texas has been meeting uh, since the early to mid-90s and have never had an issue anywhere near this at any of these meetings. In fact, the way Jake described it on the stand is something that I, I embrace myself, and that's that COC meetings are sacred ground. They're there for all motorcycle clubs to gather to discuss issues that mutually affect all bikers. And that's how these meetings have existed, in fact, not just in Texas, but coast-to-coast for decades without any issues, even among motorcycle clubs that maybe don't get along outside of that room. And so the last thing that anybody expected, including law enforcement, including the banditos, is that someone would escalate or create a conflict to this degree at a Confederation of Clubs meeting. It's a political gathering. So what, and what happened? I think that... I'm sorry. Go ahead, Double D. I, I got so many no, questions no, no. in my head. But you know, what happened along the, 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 st- the criminal justice stage, you know, the probable cause and so on, where the right individuals, or at least many of the, where, where the focus of this, and it, it seems like the Cossacks were the focus, why wasn't most of the uh, indictments and the arrests focused there as opposed to arrest everybody that walked in that door? Well, I, I agree with you. And I think what happened is the Waco Police Department originally um, gathered 177 individuals together in order to question them. And their plan was to release the vast majority of people that were arrested that day. I, I mean, just want to stop you there. That's exactly cause. the way it's supposed to happen. Okay, let's bring all the witnesses together and then decide what happens. All right, so step one sounded pretty good. Right. Well, step two is where things began to go sideways. And that's where the district attorney, Abel Reyna, intervened in the investigation with a prepared arrest, uh, with a prepared generic fill-in-the-blank arrest warrant that basically said, no, you're not going to let these people go. You're going to arrest every individual there who was either a member of the Banditos, the Cossacks, or one of their support clubs. So basically, they justified arresting 177 people, and the vast majority of them, simply because of their association with a motorcycle club and the clothing that they were wearing. That was the threshold for the decision 
um, to arrest an individual uh, based on Abel Reyna's uh, uh, arrest warrant. So and it was the one, let's say, ADA, assistant district attorney in that case, or maybe the district, I don't know how it works out there. The DA in that case, attorney. yes. Uh, it was just one DA making this unilateral decision. To, this is an injustice. I mean, I've read more about this than just this conversation we're having right now. And I'm glad to hear that uh, the police did their job the way they should have, and I'm glad to hear that from you. And the fact that even uh, Jay Carazel attributed, uh, you know, police action to try to uh, stop a very, very difficult situation. But uh, you could have a, a rogue DA. I mean, they, they could make a mess out of things. Was that ever well, exposed? Yeah, it, it was exposed. In fact, there's a hearing uh, next week on November 20th that related uh, to that generic arrest warrant. And there was an issue of perjury that was either committed by the district attorney, Abel Reyna, or an officer that was involved in issuing those warrants, the one who actually signed that generic warrant, and his last name is Chavez. So during a recusal hearing a couple of months ago, they both took the stand separately, and Chavez said that he was given the final draft of the arrest warrant from Abel Reyna. When Abel Reyna took the stand, he argued that he had talked to Chavez for an hour that day, gave him a draft of that arrest warrant, and said he wanted him to validate all of the particular facts. Unfortunately, Chavez says he never talked to Abel Reyna that day, that that conversation never happened. So they're two diametrically opposed pieces of testimony, and only one of them can be true. Well, that's called perjury, so as you said. Of, that's perjury. That's a crime. Yeah. One of them committed perjury. And uh, that's a very serious issue. And not only uh, uh, does it bring into serious question whether the McLennan County District Attorney's Office should prosecute any of these cases, but if the district attorney is found to have perjured himself, um, that's criminal. No, well, they, they, they could dis- lose his life. And court. they could dismiss all these other charges. Uh, I just want to have Jim Barr, Jim Barr, president of Long Island Bay. Just jump in for a second. I mean, I, I'm shocked. Jim, what are you thinking? Um, like you are, completely shocked. That's why ever since this happened, we've been watching it from Long Island Bay, trying to you know keep an eye on this. Because if they're successful with these prosecutions in Texas, it would sweep across the whole country. Every motorcyclists would be uh, become criminals just because of their affiliation. If you so get a rogue, a rogue DA that says, okay, let's stop these guys or women riding motorcycles because of some c- criminal conspiracy, we could have some, some civil rights violations in all the 50 states if you think about this. Something like this could really, could really happen out there, if you think. Yeah, if the prosecution was successful, it's going to actually legalize violating your rights. And that's what I want to, I want to go back to Double D. He's our uh, uh, man at the scene, so to speak. Um, you know, uh, in, in the few minutes that we have left, what do you think is going to happen now? There's a lot more trials. There's a lot more individuals that are under indictment in this case. Uh, as far as, you know, you're talking about perjury on the part of the system. That's some serious stuff. Do you think uh, he is scheduled to be retried? Do you think that's going to happen? You know, that, that's the question of the hour, and there's been a lot of conjecture both ways. It doesn't make a lot of sense. One of the things that many people do not understand is the count, uh, the jury count, actually how the guilty and non-guilty um, verdict came down. The vast majority of that jury voted not guilty, and actually at one point during deliberations, they had unanimously decided on a not guilty verdict for the directing organized criminal activity charge. Excuse me, there's a train coming by. Okay. Uh, so at one, at one point on Thursday, um, the first day of deliberation, they came to uh, a unanimous verdict of not guilty. And then, which was later revealed after they interviewed the jurors and after actually uh, some personal messages were sent 
from jurors to the defense team when the trial was over, it was two or three individuals that voted guilty, and the rest of that panel voted not guilty. So not only do you have um, an unsuccessful uh, prosecution and a mistrial, but you also have a jury that voted not guilty almost down the almost down the line. And so the decision to retry Jake, which is supposedly their best case, in my opinion, is not a good decision. And in, and in the eyes of many defense attorneys who are familiar with the case, not a good decision. But one thing to keep in mind is many people don't believe you should arrest 177 people either. So, well, that's I the fl- that's the first floor right from the start. Uh, I remember when this case uh, occurred in, in May 2015. That was the first thing I said. How can you do that? How can you just pretty much arrest everybody in a in in a, in a geographic area? You're it. You're it. You're it. And and then I heard later on that they almost like Xerox the indictments. Oh yeah, they were generic fill in the blank uh, uh, arrest warrants. And of the 177 people that were arrested, 155 of them are currently under indictment, including Jake. Okay, any so, other trials coming uh, up now prior to March? Let's say they retry uh, Jay Carazel uh, in March. Is there any other that are scheduled? Well, the one that was supposed to be scheduled to go second was a member of a club called the Scimitars, which is a support club for the Cossacks. Um, and his name is Matt Clendenin. And his attorney is named Clint Broden. And Clint Broden is the one who actually is exposing a lot of the improprieties of the district attorney's office. He is the one who started the ball rolling on these perjury charges and these decisions the district attorney made. And so Matt Clendenin does not have a trial date yet. Mm. So, yeah, this pretrial date that was uh, released yesterday um, is the only thing that's actually scheduled to occur. So that doesn't mean that they're going to retry him, certainly, but there's no other cases set for trial at this point. Can I ask you this? I mean, we have a few minutes left. Uh, do you think this was motivated by nothing more than sheer incompetence uh, on the part of the DA staff or uh, an out-and-out out discrimination or prejudice against uh, motorcycle clubs, motorcycling, and so on? I think it's the latter. I very much do. And mm-hmm. once you listen mm-hmm. to the prosecution and once you listen to the expert, um, quote-unquote, gang witnesses that they call to the stand, they believe that there's nothing that these motorcycle clubs could do that would change their perception on whether they were legitimate organizations. They are defined from the beginning to the end as criminal organizations in the eyes of the prosecution and in the eyes of many of these expert witnesses that took the stand. And so, you know, there's an epidemic of what we call motorcycle profiling occurring coast to coast in America. And I believe this was one of the biggest examples in the history of motorcycle club culture where that came to fruition. So I very certainly believe that the decision to arrest 177 people based on your association and what you're wearing is baseline discrimination. And I think that's why the decision was made. You know, uh, it's almost to the point that they're handling this case so wrong that those guilty parties may just get a free ride on something like this. That's a possibility here. Well, you know, and it's unfortunate. I believe many of the culpable individuals were, uh, were, were killed by law enforcement on the scene. But there is uh, a couple of individuals who clearly on video committed capital murder and have not been held responsible. Um, You know, there's an individual named Mohawk who was not a member of the uh, Banditos Motorcycle Club, just a a supporter of the red and gold. Uh, uh, You know, he's a decorated war veteran. And he attempted to disarm an individual who was shooting at people on the ground. And uh, he was shot point blank in his head. And that individual is still walking around free, and it's on video. 
It's the one clear case of capital murder that occurred there. And this individual doesn't even have a trial date. So I think that they selectively prosecuted uh, Jake Carazal because of the motorcycle club that he is a member of, because it's a, you know, a national club. It's a very, very well-known club. And I think that it would have been viewed by the DA as a bigger win um, to uh, get a guilty verdict against D- Double D, we're, we're going to have to take a we're going to have to take a break, Double D. But I'm going to put you on hold. If you have more time, we'd like to get you for another segment just to uh, you know conclude all of this and try to put it together. If that's okay. Yes, that will work. Okay, put you right on hold. I'm your host Tom Shalero with uh, Jim Barr sitting in uh, Long Island Bay, uh, talking about this very very fascinating uh, criminal prosecution out there in Waco, Texas. The uh, Twin Peaks case. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Your Island here on 103.9 LA News Radio. We'll be right back. following radio show is live except for the announcement you're hearing right now welcome back to your island live with your host tom shalero on 103.9 li news radio and once again welcome back as we're streaming along talking about that incident in waco texas back in uh, may of 2015 before we begin this segment of our program is being brought to you by the csea the civil service employees association they have 275,000 workers in the great state of new york 48,000 can be found right here on long island you see them as groundskeepers see them in your school districts on public buildings they are the folks that keep new york running uh just a great bunch of people that uh for the most part uh we, uh, we honor them, and uh, we see the great work that they do. Nick Lamort is their president. Now, getting right back into our discussion, speaking with Double D, Confederation of Clubs. He's out there, been witnessing this trial. What a great trial this is. If you're a student of criminal justice system, it is a great trial in the sense that you could learn how evidence is presented, but also the, the, the uh, tainted element of what happens when there is corruption. And we've seen that uh, quite often, not even so f- that, that far from our own borders. And also with me is Jim Barr, president of Long Island Abate. Jim has been a very, very staunch advocate, and so has Long Island Abate under Jim's leadership of uh, motorcyclist rights and just uh, helping the folks, whether it's at the, at the courtroom and making sure that uh, people receive justice for uh, motorcycle accidents as a result of drunk or distracted driving or just absolute carelessness. Now, back to Double D. Double D, are you with us again? I am, yes. Okay, um, you know, I've read a lot about this case. And they, see, the district attorney had some sort of a cloud. You know, again, we're very much used to that here in Suffolk County because we had the same thing happen to our district attorney. Uh, there was an FBI investigation, although everybody is innocent and true proven guilty, and I wish that would apply in this case. But um, we have seen areas of suspicion, clouds of suspicion to, to the folks down there in Waco, Texas, particularly on the prosecuting end. What can you tell us about that? Well, I, I think that uh, the issues with this particular prosecutor go back far beyond or are far back before Twin Peaks and uh, even touch unrelated issues. His previous first chair, the previous assistant district attorney, whose last name is Davis, um, has filed an affidavit with the court that basically articulates how Reyna, the current district attorney, has been under federal investigation for a number of years, for since 2013, 
for trading the decision not to prosecute uh, credible uh, criminal charges against individuals in exchange for campaign contributions. And Davis actually mentions three specific cases where this occurred and even explains how the current uh, uh, assistant district attorney that's sitting in the first chair, Michael Jarrett, purchased a burner phone to communicate with the FBI about Raina's improprieties so Raina would not find out he was communicating with the FBI. So I think this goes uh, uh, far deeper uh, than just the issues related to Twin Peaks, but I think they're important to demonstrate, as you stated, the level of corruption that's happening in McLennan County uh, centered around this particular district attorney. Now, when we look at these type of cases, sometimes, and I, I go back to the, uh, I believe it was the Freddie Gray case in, in Baltimore, where uh, an overzealous, and in some cases, uh, very unscrupulous, single district attorney over there in Baltimore decided to indict seven or eight police officers for murder, and all eight police officers were found not guilty because the charges were unsubstantiated. But the whole idea was this was a way for this particular district attorney, forgetting, forgetting about ruining people's lives and charging them with murder, was wanted to run for higher office. Is there some political ramifications here? Is there somebody looking to run for governor of Texas or something like that? Well, I, I'm not sure what Raina's political ambitions are, but whatever they previously were, I think that his uh, chances of being successful have been massively reduced by this cloud that's hanging over his head. Yes. I mean, there's there's corruption at multiple levels, and, um, you know, I, I think that it's starting to come uh, to the forefront. And I think that after this hearing on the 20th, the results of uh, that particular proceeding, uh, we're going to find out a lot more about this district attorney, and I think a lot of these claims will be substantiated. I mean, I think the fact that the previous first chair resigned uh, his post specifically due to these cases of corruption is uh, relatively persuasive. And the first chair, uh, as you said, that, was actually cooperating with the FBI investigation with the actual district attorney. Is that correct? Did I get that right? That That is according to the previous first chair. I got it. Okay. And okay. that's an element of the affidavit that he filed. He's making that okay. accusation that Michael Jarrett, the current first chair, uh, was communicating with the FBI and, in fact, went so far as to purchase a burner phone so uh, District Attorney Abel Reyna wouldn't know he was communicating with him. Okay, so let's, let's summarize. We have essentially a district attorney, a prosecutor, under a cloud, prosecuting a case that could have far substantial meaning because it can go to hundreds of other cases, uh, to put people in jail for life, and again, you'll correct me on any, uh, I'm just trying to piece this whole thing together, and that the uh, evidence presented in this trial is somewhat uh, not solid enough to at least get six or seven votes in a jury trial. It was like 12 or uh, 9 to 3 or whatever it was, 11 to whatever, whatever the numbers were. Overwhelming majority of the jurors voted for not guilty. Um, as, as it would seem to the average person that uh, we've got some problems here. And it's not just the jury trial of one individual. There's others to follow. And also the fact that we're talking about the seriousness of charges of taking people's freedom away for the rest of their lives. Did I get it right? Uh, I think that was a very good summation of exactly what's happening. Uh, I think it was a politically motivated decision. I think that uh, that decision is backfiring now, that they weren't able to convince even half of the 12-person jury uh, that that. Jake was guilty of doing anything, and I, I think it's telling. And if that's the best evidence, generally, they attempt to bring their best case forward first. And that for years, correct. people have, uh, for the last two and a half years at least, 
people have uh, uh, kind of conjectured that the result of this first trial would dictate what happened in many of the other trials. Well, and uh, the, I think that well, the, the jury line, sent a clear signal. Well, the line of thinking is if you can get a conviction on the first trial, we can get everybody to plead guilty. It's a plea bargain. Go say, look, this is the evidence that we have. Look what happened in the first trial. We had a good unanimous decision. The jury deliberated for two days. Uh, these guys are guilty. Uh, you go to uh, another client there of the 177, and you get them to, to cop a plea instead of to murder, maybe to manslaughter, and they'll do 15 years or something like that. But it almost seems that that ship has already sailed, the ability to get everybody else to plea it out. Uh, I agree. I don't think that based on the results of that first trial, you have much leverage to get people to plea out to a lesser charge based on what happened uh, in Jake's case. And I think it bodes well, at least for members of the Banditos Motorcycle Club and other members of you know, uh, uh, you know their other support clubs, other what we call red and gold clubs that were there, I think it's very difficult to argue that they have the leverage they need to talk them into making a deal. Now, I think that the result of that trial also says that that may not be the same for the Cossacks Motorcycle Club. There's some culpable individuals in that organization um, that, you know, I mean, quite honestly, on video shape, committed capital murder. Well, again, and I want to put that out, this was a horrible event. But the whole idea of arresting everybody in earshot or eyesight is, again, a violation of civil rights. It's a violation of, of people's rights to due process of law. Everybody listening to this program or watching this case around the country wants to see justice done for the nine individuals that were killed. The whole problem is that you could literally put people in, in jail for life that were not involved. And I think that that's a, you know, that's, that's a difficult concept to swallow. And I also want to put out there, I did read that there's some sort of a relationship with the judge in the case, that he's not the well, cleanest act in town, Mr. M&Ms or whatever you want to call him. His, his name is uh, uh, Judge Matt Johnson, and actually, I believe uh, from the bench in this trial, uh, he did the best that he could do um, to be fair and impartial. The relationship is that Abel Reyna and Matt Johnson used to work in the same, uh, they used to have the same firm. They worked together in the but same But Double D, that's called before. recusal. That's, that's called, well, I can't really well, sit in judgment it, of it, this case. I mean, you're right. It's an automatic recusal if Reyna is a material witness in the case being adjudicated. But that applies to all of the individuals who, like you said, were arrested for nothing other than their association or what they were wearing. But anybody who was engaged in a fight or actually was embroiled in the conflict, there would be probable cause for an arrest. It doesn't mean that they would ultimately be found guilty, but there would be probable cause for an arrest. So in those cases, Abel Reyna would not be a material witness because they weren't arrested uh, based just on their association. And so, uh, you know, go back to the beginning of the conversation. The Waco Police Department was going to release the majority of individuals that they were questioning, but they weren't going to release everyone. There were individuals... Well, we, we know a crime was committed. We're not, we're not saying that. We know a crime was committed. So, of course, right. they're not going to uh, release everyone. The point is so, that the police were going to do the right thing. Yeah, I guess basically what I'm explaining is Abel Reyna was not a material witness in Jake Carazal's case. And because he was not a material witness, then that doesn't trigger the automatic recusal of Matt Johnson. In okay. fact, that was one of the first things that was adjudicated at the top of the trial, is whether Abel Reyna would be a material witness in the case. And as soon as the defense identified that he would not be a material witness, then Judge Matt Johnson did not have to recuse himself. 
Yeah, again, understood. It just seems like this is, uh, I, I think they got to come up with a new nickname with this thing. It's like the mess in Waco, you know, when it comes down to, <laughs> if, if, if you're a, a student of criminal justice, this is, a, this is a case to study, to see what areas that should have been explored and that areas where when we do file for indictments and, and do try to use due process of law, which we stand very uh, close to in this country, uh, we've got a lot of violations here. You know, just a minute or two left, uh, and I know you're busy, we'll get you out of here, but, you know, for the most part, how do you see this thing going? What, you know, if you could look at the crystal ball, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, you spent a lot of days in that courtroom. Well, I ultimately uh, can't answer that question with any uh, 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 with any certainty, and the reason why is because it's McLennan County and it's Waco, and mm. the criminal justice system there has serious issues, and yeah. all of the issues we've been discussing means that that crystal ball is clouded. Mm. The way that I think that it should go is that all the charges against the vast majority of individuals that were present at Twin Peaks should be dismissed, and what they should do is prosecute the individuals they know and can prove on video committed murder uh, uh, on May 17, 2015. Yeah, and yeah. the way I've, that that shakes out is members of the Cossacks Motorcycle Club. Yeah, I've seen that video. It's quite, uh, you know, it's, it's quite dramatic when you think about it. And uh, uh, when you viewed it, what were your thoughts? Uh, my thoughts... Um, we're sadness, extreme sadness. I've been involved in the Confederation of Clubs for nearly 13 years. I've attended exact meetings like this from coast to coast. In fact, I was at the previous Region 1 meeting in Texas that occurred in January of 2015 and spoke on the steps of the Texas Capitol in Austin. I've never so much as uh, uh, saw an act of violence in all of the meetings that I've attended. And, uh, you know, it kind of broke my heart. This is a yeah. political organization that has advanced the interest of motorcyclists and patch holders uh, for nearly 30 years, and they desecrated sacred ground. Yeah, exactly, when you think about it. Once again, Double D, uh, spokesperson, Confederation of Clubs out there uh, in the last couple of weeks in the state of Texas, keeping a very close eye on this case. Very interesting case, particularly if you're interested in the system and, and also interested in, in rights and, and what we stand for in this country. I think it's very important that we have uh, persons like yourself and also the COC that keeps an eye on these things for us. Double D, thanks for joining us tonight on the show and, and enlightening us on a very, very important case. Uh, thank you very much. I'd like to I'd like to make one comment as a as a as a parting comment, and uh, that's the man that uh, you're sitting with there, uh, Mr. Jim Barr from Long Island Bay, is one of uh, the most active and important motorcycle rights activists, not only in New York but in the entire country. So yes, you guys are lucky to have. Him. Thank you very much for that, and he's very much appreciated. You know, again, all of the great things that the uh, the bikers do here in in Suffolk County is just incredible in terms of the veterans and uh, the toy run and things like that. So uh, I, I wish they would see that out there in Texas and maybe look at this case fairly and not the way in which they're looking at it. It's very unfortunate and uh, what, what they're putting people's lives through. Once again, Double D, thank you very much. Double D, I'd just like to thank you uh, also thank you. for everything you do for everybody across the country, and thank you for giving your time to us here today. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. If you, uh, if you want me in the future, uh, you know, just get a hold of me. I, I like the show quite a bit. So okay. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. Once again, Double D, Confederation of Clubs. You know, Jim, we've got a few minutes left before uh, you know, the end of the hour. Um, 
you know, it's it's like I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm trying to piece this together. Uh, we all want to see justice. Nobody wants to see anybody shoot anybody and get away with it. That we know, and we, we could accept that. But the mere fact that the almost the common denominator here was, okay, clubs, jackets, patches, uh, affiliations, uh, we're going to make blanket arrests. Uh, the DA, the police brought everybody in for question. They did the right thing, tried to piece this together. They came out with a scenario, but it was almost like there was a political part of it. And I keep referring to the case in Baltimore with the DA there and how disgusting that was. Are we dealing with the same thing? In this case, it's not people wearing blue police officers. In this case, it's people wearing club patches or uh, part of a motorcycle affiliation. Jim, what do you say? Yes. <clears throat> I, excuse me. <clears throat> I truly believe that. And in fact, I think it's kind of ironic I personally believe that law enforcement was uh, in cahoots with one of the motorcycle clubs down there to try to instigate a fight so that the banditos would react. And I do, I personally believe that they intended on arresting all the banditos. And I believe it was a trap okay. set up between the police department and this other club that's there. The ironic part of it is I believe that the banditos and their support clubs are going to be found innocent because they were not instigators. They did not uh, provoke anything. They simply defended themselves. And then the, um, the aggressive people were all from the other side that I believe was probably talking with the police department. And it looks like they're the ones that are going to end up being prosecuted based on evidence that they did something wrong. Well, that again, uh, it's certainly going to play itself out, but you know, uh, it, 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 I, I couldn't even comment either way on, on which way that's going to go. I'm just looking at what uh, you know, Double D had said. Uh, it just seems that the whole investigation here and the way in which this was put together is uh, impacting upon a lot of lives. Again, I've read about some of those 177 people, and uh, you know, I keep referring to some of the more off-duty cops that were brought in, some of them retired police officers that were brought in. You know, These are people that are not going to be committing capital murder uh, over the ability to control turf where you can drive your two wheels, I mean, for whatever the beef is between these different organizations. So it, it would seem to me there was some, there's some wrongful prosecution here. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why it's so important that it stay on a national level. You have to get the media to discuss this, to let them know um, what's taking place. Because of the violation of the civil rights that are taking place, if, like I said, if they're successful— our rights will be violated all across the whole country. You wouldn't be, it, wouldn't, it would no longer be legal to belong to a motorcycle organization. Right, when you think about it. Like, groups like Long Island Abate that do so many great things, uh, who knows where the, uh, the magic marker will streak across. I mean, they could say, all right, these groups, but these groups are okay, but you wouldn't even know that. I mean, the, the lines would become blurred. Absolutely, there's no distinction. And I believe that they're going to go for the highest profile ones first. Mm. Once they get them, then they have to have another target, and they're just going to go so on and so on. The um, meeting that Double D was referring to the week before in Colorado, right. the national um, meeting, I was at that meeting. It was pure politics. It was all about setting a national agenda for all motorcyclists to go back to their states and lobby the motorcyclists in their states to work on the same agenda. The, um, the top priority was going to be anti-profiling of motorcyclists. So I know for a fact that this COC meeting that was scheduled one week later was strictly to um, transfer the information that took place in Colorado to disseminate that to all the politically active motorcyclists in their state.
You, you think it's to the point where the motorcycle organizations have become effective, and I'll say the word effective, and you could enlighten me more, uh, lobbying groups, the ability uh, to get legislators on your side, to pass laws that are fair for everybody, the motoring public, and so on. Yes, I truly believe there's a big difference, um, a b- big improvement in it. And the COC that you were referring to, it's also uh, in Texas, they have the COC and I, and mm-hmm. it's the Confederation of Clubs and Independents. And I give them a lot of credit for taking the independents in, into the motorcycle community with all the other clubs. And that's where your, your numbers come from. It includes all the MROs, the motorcycle rights organizations. So now when the motorcycle rights organizations go and lobby, they have many more motorcyclists standing behind them, which uh, equates to votes, which is what politicians are going to listen to. Yeah, when you really do think about it. It's a fascinating case, and we'll keep an eye on it. It has impact uh, throughout the country and also particularly here on Long Island. Once again, I'm your host, Tom Schlera, with Jim Barr, president of Long Island Abate, uh, and we were speaking with Double D out there in Texas, uh, keeping an eye on that uh, trial for us. We're going to take a short break now. When we get back, we're going to have Nick Giordano in the, oil, in, in the studio, and we'll be uh, talking about some of these uh, national issues that are going on. I'm your host, Tom Schlera. You've been listening to the award-winning Your Island here on 103.9 L. Live News Radio. Took a short break. We'll be right back. <laughs> 